0: Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the Memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832-1914. to And we're in chapter 32, and we're on page 315. And this chapter, or this section heading, is Zenith H. Gurley. Thank you for joining me, and bear with me as I trip over the words sometimes. (laughs) Enjoy listening. Thank you for joining me. Zenis H. Gurley To go back to the events of early 1892, it was February the 2nd when I returned home from that trip to Independence when I first attended the taking of depositions in the temple lot suit. From then until conference time, I was engaged in the work of the Herald Office and the usual trude of church business. I think it probably is meant to say trend. The conference that year was held at Independence. For the routine of its transactions, I may refer interested readers to the official minutes duly published. There was one occurrence, however, which I desire to incorporate here. It had been rumoured that Zenith H. Gurley Jr., who with Jason W. Briggs and others had withdrawn from the church a few years earlier, expected to be present at the session for the purpose of reuniting with us. In discussing this contingency, some assumed that the method in which these members had been severed from the body had been irregular and not in harmony with rules previously established by the conference. Those rules required an action on a charge of apostasy to be brought against persons desiring to separate and the matter of withdrawal to be submitted to a properly established tribunal for examination. They to report back to the body for final action. Instead of this procedure having been followed, the members had simply submitted their request to withdraw, which request had by vote been granted. Some expressed the opinion that this withdrawal having been permitted by by vote of the conference without the formality of a trial did not constitute a severance so absolute but that by motion and vote of the same body the members could be reinstated in full association. Elder Gurley was indeed present during some days of the session and was cordially received by members who knew him nothing of a personally unfriendly character being in evidence on one day there was a meeting devoted to short speeches by various individuals who spoke by request of the presiding officer at that time elder Gurley responded to an invitation to address the assembly his speech showing a fair enough spirit i had a cordial conversation with him after that meeting of a rather personal nature, though, without reference to any church action. He expressed a desire to attend the sessions next day, but it developed that before the time for meeting had arrived, he had been called back to Iowa and had left without communicating with anyone officially connected with the conference or its business affairs. It was learned that as a result of his having served as member of the General Assembly, of Iowa some few years before and his loyalty to the Republican Party and the work of the legislator, he had been rewarded by being appointed Deputy Warden of the Iowa State Penitentiary at Anamosa. He had stated upon coming to the conference that he did not know how long he could stay nor what would be his future course, but felt it would probably be decided before conference adjourned as he was waiting for certain information that, if it came, would settle his uncertainty. So I presume his appointment to this post was the word he had been expecting. He remained at that institution for a number of years, finally became engaged in sales work located at Canton in northeast Missouri, and there died in the year nineteen thirteen, as I may have recorded elsewhere. I have neither wish nor disposition to ascribe anything of a dishonourable character to the course pursued by Brother Gurley in his withdrawal from the church or the incidents that led up to it, though I am of that of the opinion that, with others who withdrew at that time, he made the most grievous mistake of his life. Some thought a serious rupture would occur following the separation of these able men, but this proved to be a groundless fear. A few supported the Gurley fortunes, in their segregation, among them two families of Wrights at Davis County and a family of Beech at Pleasanton, both in Iowa. That Jason W. Briggs had no intention or purpose of securing or causing a disintegration in the church is proved by his testimony upon the witness stand in the Temple Lot suit, in which he affirmed that he believed the reorganised church to be the true church of God. Some may possibly think it presumptuous for me to offer here the supposition that Zenas Gurley might have held in mental reservation the same opinion that Jason, Jason Briggs expressed, viz. that the reorganized church was indeed. The church acknowledged by Christ. The fact remains that he took no active part in any onslaught upon our work, but went about his own business, leaving our affairs alone. His brother Edwin kept up a desultory warfare upon us for a time, but I have satisfactory reasons for believing it was without concurrence upon the part of Zenos. Next heading, After Many Days so far in the memoirs, I have not made many references to financial assistance offered to and received by me during my church labors, but it must, must not be supposed that the saints were lacking in generosity in this particular, nor I in gratitude. An instance occurred in the year, in this year of eighteen ninety-two. Bearing upon the matter which justified me in placing some confidence in the old proverb, cast thy bread upon the waters, and after many days it shall be returned unto thee. The incident has to do with some assistance I was able to render another engaged in missionary labour. Along in the sixties, some time, Brother Henry A. Stebbins, then a young man, was appointed and sustained as President of the Northern Illinois District, One of the conditions upon which he accepted this office was that he should be furnished with means of transportation through and about the district. I was living in Plano at the time, and had a fair outfit which I placed at his disposal. The mare, called Tatty was finely bred and very much above the average in intelligence and spirit. Hitched to a suitable buggy, she was used for quite a number of years by Brother Stebbins, in his labours as he travelled all over the country. She was called the Gospel Mare and had many admirers among the church members so often visited. My brother David made her quite famous because of a little song he wrote about her and her missionary travels, which later were really quite extensive. She was a great favourite and pet in our family for many, many years. It was not expected under the circumstances that Brother Stebbins was to pay for the use of this rig, since it was offered and used in the spirit of mutual cooperation in the work of the master. The event had long since faded from my memory when April the 22nd of the year 1892, very much to my surprise, I received from him a cheque for $50, which he asked me to accept as part remuneration, for his having used tatty and the buggy in the manner described this offering came in such a way i could not without violating the feelings of the good brother and the kindly spirit and genius of his intentions refuse to accept him and which i have regarded it quite appropriately i think as bread which came back to me after many days at present writing, Brother Stebbins is in his 71st year and is faithfully and assiduously labouring as opportunity permits among the church membership in Lamoni and vicinity. Next heading, Varied Events. Among the funerals of 92, I note that of William D. Morton of Burlington, who was buried there on Sunday, August the 14th, This item is worthy of note for the reason that Brother Morton was in contact with the Church from a very early day, having been a printer in the office of the Times and Seasons at the time of the break-up in Nauvoo. He was there when the Nauvoo edition of the Book of Covenants was finished, published and placed before the public. I may have mentioned his later life elsewhere in these memoirs. He removed to Burlington many years ago with his family. I performed the ceremony which united him to Miss Mary White, his second wife. He was well known to the patrons of the post office, and his funeral was largely attended. As I remember the service now, a more solemn burial I was never permitted to witness. A few zealous and devoted members of the church, in the faith of which he had lived and died, sang the inspired hymns we all love, as we laid away the remains of this humble and honourable worker. His wife survived him for quite a number of years, but has now passed to her reward. The reunion of 1892 was held again at Logan. Brother Joseph B. Van Meter, a a widower who had come to Lamoni from the West, had quite a good team of horses and, being without dependents, volunteered to take me to the meeting. He had been a camp follower during the Civil War, pursuing the trade of horseshoeing in which he still engaged to some extent. We started from Lamoni on the 27th of September and reached Logan on the first day of October, with no special events on the way. I was entirely free from responsibility and care, and we travelled in a pleasant degree of comradeship He was full of interest in war reminiscences, and his life otherwise had been filled with some vicissitudes, which had brought to light much of the best that was in him. He was fond of religious conversation, quite adept in asking questions, though not much given to speculate on particular theories, or on peculiar theories. His one son was a sufferer from epilepsy, and was therefore something of a burden, but was, however, able to take care of himself, and hence the father expressed no anxiety in regard to him during our absence. The reunion was organised on October 1st, the usual services in the big tent occupying the time until Sunday two weeks later, after which we started back home. The trip proved a bit more eventful than the one going. Brother Van Meter lost his way, and we were two days right ourselves. We finally reached Lamoni in fair condition, though for nearly a week I had been suffering from a head congestion and neuralgia. It was a comfort to be once more at home where I could receive efficient and tender care and ministry, and I came through all right. My diary records records two dedications in this year, which I may note. One was at St. Louis where a neat and comfortable building on Elliott Avenue was dedicated on June 5th, in which service I assisted by invitation of Brother James W. Gillam, then in charge. The second was at Kibble, Illinois, on December the 4th, where I went in company with Bishop G. H. Hilliard and Brother Elmsey Curtis. An excellent frame building built by the handful of royal members at a convenient place in the neighbourhood, was dedicated at that time. The sermon being delivered by me, the prayer by Brother Hilliard. I became acquainted with a number of the members there, among whom was Littlebury Curtis, almost a godfather to the branch, and the large family of Curtises, some of whom John T., and several brothers now live in independence. A week's service services were held, and by request, on one evening, I spoke on the marriage relation as understood and preached by the reorganized church. Notice of this meeting was widely circulated. the weather was good, and the time auspicious. Father Curtis had a clerk in his store who on the way to the meeting took special pains to inform me that his sister, who taught his school nearby, intended to come out to hear me, adding that she was extremely well educated and was given to freely criticising the English, the diction and the pulpit manner of the ministers whom she heard talk. I told him I was quite willing to have her criticise me if her comments were just and of such a nature that I could profit from them. I went to the service, however without giving the matter further thought, and occupied an hour and a half in presenting my views. On the way back to the home of Brother Curtis, the clerk told me, with considerable glee, that his sister had been wonderfully pleased and surprised with me as a speaker. Why, said he, she told me you did not make a single error in your grammar during your whole address, and that you were the only minister she had listened to for years, with whose language she could not justly find fault. It seemed to please the young man immensely, and as I had given no special thought to the young lady or her tendency to criticise, but had spoken in my customary manner, I, too, quite appreciated the compliment. I told him it was possible that his sister had been so much interested in the matter I presented that she had failed to notice my errors in speech, but it hardly seemed possible that I had not been guilty at some point of my discourse of breaking some rule of grammar, or of having done some violence to the Queen's English. I note this incident simply because the tribute was the more gratifying through being totally unexpected. Next heading. Gaining footholds. Some matters came up which required that Bishop Kelly and I should attend the conference in the Nodaway district of Missouri. It was held at Bedison and proved to be an excellent meeting, for people of talent were called together who contributed generously to its success. The members of this district were mostly Scandinavians, who had made large settlements in that locality and were presided over by Brother M. P. Madison, My memorandum is meagre, but the meeting was written up in fair detail in the current Herald at the time. Another interesting meeting, which occurred early in 1893, was one held in connection with the dedication of a church at Kingston, Caldwell County, Missouri. There, under the active ministry of T.W. Chatsburn, J.C. Elvert, J.D. Flanders and other labourers, A suitable building had been erected, and conditions seemed very favourable for the advancement of our work in that locality. At the dispersion of the church from Nauvoo and the flight of many to the west, numbers stopped at the Missouri River and settled either on the eastern side, north or south of Council Bluffs in Iowa and Missouri, or on the western side along the fertile lands of Nebraska and Kansas. Many things connected with this dispersion and scattering of the saints up and down the Missouri River have been productive of much good, for in these remnants of the old church were often found splendid material from which to build up active branches of the reorganisation when our message reached them. Among those who found developments in the church which did not meet their approval, causing them to stop short in their western trek, was one John Wright. He settled at Kingston, Missouri, where he engaged in business, became a student of law and an important member of society. He was eventually elected probate judge of the county. There, the elders of our church found him, but his championship of our cause did not develop until, on an occasion, the Christian church congregation which he had joined refused the use of their house for the declaration of our gospel message. This action influenced him to openly avow a connection with us and from thenceforth he was an active and efficient labourer. He donated land and means and under his administration, wise counsel and generous help money, was raised and the building erected that we dedicated on January the twenty-second. I feel again that a more minute and careful review of the achievement of this loyal group might be inspirational to others, and I would refer them to a them to a perusal of accounts written at the time during our brief stay at Kingston. An exhibition an expedition was made to far west where a considerable number of us enjoyed traversing historic grounds and hearing again the story of the trials and tribulations our predecessors there endured. Next heading, dedication of the Brick Church. At the April conference of 1893 held in Lamoni, the Brick Church there was dedicated. This service took place on the 6th of April. Brother Asa S cochran president of the branch presided the opening prayer was offered by elder stebbins the dedicatory prayer by my colleague w. w. blair and the sermon by myself as recalled the scene was an impressive one and the occasion seemed auspicious marked marking as it did an epoch not only in the lemoni branch but in the church as well the immense throngs which assembled for the service, seemed a fulfilment of a prediction I had made at the time plans for the building were being considered. I had urged that it should, if possible, be made large enough to hold 2,000 people, but I was sure it would be necessary to accommodate that many before long. At the time, this statement seemed quite preposterous, but the judgment of Reverend Banter, Dancer, Rogers, Blair and others confirmed my estimate, and a building 50 feet by 80 with a vestibule of 10 feet at the east end was erected between the year 1883 and this day of dedication ten years later. A generous response had been made by all the people of the vicinity, men of means and business even though not of our faith, donating liberally as well as our own members and the work had gone forward without relaxation of effort. So it was, with a sense of real triumph over many difficulties acknowledged by all, experienced fully by a few, that we at last had the completed Commodious Meeting House. It was a coincidence that on the day of our dedication in Lamoni, the Salt Lake City Temple was also dedicated, an occurrence in which, of course, there was no collusion. One unfortunate memory is connected with this conference of 1893. It has to do with a brother, Elder R. H. Atwood. He had been in the active ministry of the church and sometime during the winter had come to Lamoni to work as one of the committee to audit the books of the church and of the Herald Office. He was taken ill. And as conference time approached, it became evident he would not be able to attend meetings, as he had so long anticipated doing. He departed this life on the 25th of March, much to the regret of many of the saints who had hoped he could remain with us. My memorandum shows that early in July, I dedicated a church at Higby, Missouri, where a small branch had been built up by the efforts of Brother George Thorburn and the families of Peter's winning lily richards chapman jones and others it seemed the lord was blessed was blessing the labors of the ministry and laity alike for these years were surely years of expansion and progression about the middle of july i made one of my periodical visits to nauvoo and vicinity spending some time with my Salisbury cousins at Carthage at and Burnside. I had the privilege at this time of baptising some of his relatives, Mary Emma Florence and Grace Salisbury, Lucy Duke and Lyda Sherman. Next heading, with Comrade Kelly. Early in August, I travelled east to meet Bishop E. L. Kelly in Philadelphia, where Brother A. H. Parsons was labouring as pastor and missionary. After visiting some among the family of the church, there we made the circuit of New York City, Fall River, Providence and Boston. It may not be necessary to record much about this visit with my comrade, who was a thorough American from southern ancestry. I sat again in the historic assembly room, of Carpenter Hall again viewed the small museum where swings the old Liberty Bell, mounting in its frame, and again read its patriotic inscription, and patted its sturdy old sides. Again I saw the chair in which Washington sat when presiding over the notable assembly, and again read the prayer of that reverend concern in whom, when his name was proposed for the invocation, Adams had said. I am not bigoted and can join with any sincere man in presenting our cause to the giver of all good. It was a pleasure to go over these places with Brother Kelly. Together we visited at Brooklyn the families of Joseph Squires, senior and junior, George and Captain John Potts, and others of note. With them we gathered under the management of their elder at a picnic at Coney Island, took in many of the amusements of that pleasure parade and enjoyed, or tried to, a bath in the sea, in the ocean. The water was rough from a recent storm, its condition affording an opportunity for much merriment for us religionists, despite the fact that some of the young women became almost hysterical in their fright at the buffeting of the boisterous waves. An episode in connection with this swim may be mentioned. There was a member there, new to me, by the name of Elder Owen. He had come from England, where he had once engaged Brother J.W. Briggs in a discussion of religious principles. Failing to dislodge Brother Briggs from the position assumed, he had come to recognise the logic of truth and sound reasoning and had united with us, soon coming to America. On this day, when we went to the beach for a bath, he essayed to establish himself a sort of personal bodyguard for President Smith, evidently under the impression that, because I was from a prairie country, I would be inexperienced in the water, and such care and oversight would be a wise precaution. He had been raised on the Seagirt Isle of England, and was well acquainted with old ocean, in all its varied moods and pranks, and felt qualified to exercise this watch care over me. He volunteered considerable advice while we were preparing for the dip, and conveyed me to the water, wading in with me a portion of the way. There was a considerable swell running, and as we stood in the water facing it, I simply timed myself properly and... When the next big incoming wave tumbled in, I met it with a plunge, diving right through it to the very evident astonishment of my kind protector. Brother Owen laughed afterward at his over-solicitude for me and remarked that if Brother Joseph was not familiar with the Atlantic, at least he was no novice at swimming and could well take care of himself without any sort of guard. Thus I was left to my own devices bathing facilities at that point at that time involved running the gauntlet of fresh water tugs which plied between the deeper salt waters of the ocean and the shallower streams flowing into it as i stood at the end of one of these tugs right after my initial plunge shivering from the first shock there came into mind the words of the poet this is the unkindest cut of all however i quickly became inert to the cold element, and having paid the money and counted the cost, again took some icy plunges. The exhilaration of exercise exercising drying afterwards overcome the chilliness of the first reception, and I left Coney Island with recollections of a very pleasant and profitable day, and a conscient- consciousness that I had seen and participated in one more phase of life as living by the dwellers of the busy metropolis. I recall another incident of this visit, in company with Brother Kelly, I took in one of the shows of the city. It was a slate of hand performance, at which things were done which seemed almost unbelievable and entirely beyond the scope of my comprehension at the time. My experiences since then have not helped to offer solutions satisfactory to my mind, often as I have recalled and pondered them. For instance, the adept placed a derby hat upon a chair and addressed it as if it were endowed with life and intelligence, asking it questions, but all the time standing at some distance from the headgear. The most astonishing answers came from the hat, accompanied by a series of movements in harmony with the words, "'Most Interesting and Amazing.' When asked if his sweetheart were alive the hat shook itself in negation and then apparently in the last stage of faintness from grief and despair over the sad fact drooped over and fell from the chair in a most lugubrious and laughable manner. Another stunt was that the prestigious tater... "'took a child about six or eight years old, "'wrapped him up as if for sleep "'and laid him in a large wicker basket, "'covering it up. "'He tied it securely with ropes "'and then standing near it plainly in our sight every second, "'he passed a sword through and through "'every portion of that basket, "'or at least appeared to do so, "'back and forth, flashed the sword cuts, "'and it seemed it could not possibly be "'anything short of a murder.' publicly committed and with which we seemed almost compelled to interfere. However, others seemed unmoved by the performance except to be amused and entertained. So we men from the country deemed it wisdom to mind our own business and look smilingly on also. After some time and quite a little by-play, including some music, the basket was opened and the child lifted out, unharmed because untouched by all the spectacular swordplay another exhibition somewhat similar may possibly have been managed by the assistance of suitable appliances i cannot say two young women one tall and fair and dressed in white the other short and dark and dressed in black were enclosed each in a separate sack these sacks were tied with a cord at the top and a seal placed upon them they were placed in two wicker baskets on the platform and around them The performer executed a wild and curious sword exercise, apparently cutting through and through them with such vigor and thoroughness there could have been no interior space that could escape the flashing blade. Then the baskets were opened, the sacks with seals unbroken were straightened up, and the young women stepped forth unharmed. But to our astonishment, a complete metamorphosis had taken place in their entire for as they emerged from their separate sacks, the tall, fair woman was dressed in black and her small, dark companion in white. A very commendable feature about this exhibition is that the performer, an intelligent man, gave a little talk at the beginning in which he frankly told us that things would be done which would seem wonderful but were really optical illusions, serving to prove how easily even eyewitnesses may be deceived." The eye is a most magnificent and glorious organ of the body, but it cannot always be depended upon to give truthful testimony of what occurs. He said, you people will look upon my efforts and will say you see me do so and so, when in reality you do not see it, but are being imposed upon all the while. To illustrate his statements, he gave a few simple demonstrations that were very interesting and enlightening. Does it seem odd to my readers that a couple of religious men such as we should have found enjoyment and an evening's pastime in such a lecture and performance? Perhaps, but in recording it here as an incident of that visit to New York, I may simply remind you by way of explanation that a little nonsense now and then is relished by the best of men. At the same time, making no claim to external, external. I'm tripping over my words again. Excuse me making no claim to extraordinary goodness on our part. With the exception of things which are vicious and evil in their nature, I have always taken a degree of interest in the odd things of human life, museums and curiosities of various sorts, and in this evening's entertainment I saw nothing either harmful or vulgar, and it did not appear to be one of the novelties of New York life that should be shunned. It was no worse than in the salt, than the sort of biological lectures and slate-of-hand exhibitions of magic which used to abound in the country places in the west and i have never regretted spending the hour thus bishop kelly explained that some time before attaining his majority he was employed in a business which required frequent visits to new to new york city i think he was a deckhand or some other kind of employee on a boat engaged in traffic on the hudson river when the boat would be in new york he spent some time in becoming acquainted with its various sights and places and stumbled upon many interesting things those years had not been so very many prior to our visit there together not so many as have passed since then while new york city was enormous in that year of 1893 It has increased still more since then and is now second to but one in the world. It may be well to close this memory by stating that we took an evening meal at the restaurant of the New York Central Railway and there I had the first clam chowder I ever ate. Fortunately, my appetite has always enabled me to eat anything others do and to enjoy it. Never having had to learn to like fish of any kind, this clam chowder proved very acceptable to me, a toothsome dish of which I am very fond. Brother Kelly was a very pleasant travelling companion, always ready to take his part in any work to be done, and able and effective in doing so. I found him a splendid counsellor. He was quite well used to the generally accepted usages of society, and hence in his company I did not appear as awkward or make any make as many mistakes as I might have done alone or with one not so well versed he was very kind and considerate of me in every way I called to mind that in Boston I had a severe attack of facial neuralgia we were staying for the night at the home of a Scandinavian brother named I think Georgeson and occupied a room together like many other accommodations offered by saints when Crowded with guests, one of the beds was made on a mattress on the floor. This brother, Kelly, insisted upon occupying, leaving me the more comfortable one on the bedstead. He was very sympathetic in my suffering and treated me with first one remedy he thought would bring relief and then another. At last I was able to sink into slumber and find the repose demanded by a tired and exhausted nature. This was one of the last nights spent with him on this mission, for I started westward next day, meeting Brother Blair in Chicago to undertake the work we had planned to do in connection with the Congress of World's Religions at the Columbian Exposition. Next heading, Congress of Religions. Sometime prior to 1893, a movement had been started among the leaders of the nation to hold in Chicago a world's fair such as had been held some years before in the crystal palace in london and in 1876 in philadelphia this one was to commemorate the discovery of america by columbus and was designed to outstrip all others in magnificence and appointments and to show in a marvelous manner the wonderful improvements and advancement which had been made in the world's industry in all avenues of civic, civil and social life. Connected with the movement dealing with temporal affairs, a religious feature was to be introduced called the Congress or Parliament of World's Religions. The general idea being to bring together a proper representation and make an adequate exposition of the different religions of the world without discrimination against or preference for any. This, at least, was the understanding we of the reorganised church had concerning the plans of the Congress. The movement seemed timely, for developments in religion could well be explained hand in hand with the developments in the secular realm and its exhibits be placed side by side with those of arts, science and invention. With others, we were inclined to rejoice that such opportunity for cooperation and association had come. To meet the situation, Brother Blair, Brother Luff and I were appointed a committee to represent the church. It was deemed a capital opportunity for the distribution of tracts and other literature, setting forth the faith and doctrine of our organisation. Events proved we were wrong in our hopes for those conducting the fair put a ban on this kind of project, prohibiting the exhibition or distribution of anything of the kind within the limits of the fairgrounds. The only way it could be done would be to secure some eligible site outside the grounds and trust to the casual interest that might be aroused in chance passers-by. This plan we did not undertake to follow partly because of the great cost to us of such a movement, partly because every desirable location for such a project within a reasonable distance of the grounds was taken, and partly because we felt the results of such an effort would probably be but negligible. We had a small building on Ed Adams Street in which services were held by our people during the several months of the fair, the same as in other seasons, but otherwise our efforts to interest the public were much, very much restricted. Whatever hopes we entertained as to being allowed a proper presentation of our views during the sittings of the Congress of World's Religions were also dispelled. When the matter was put to the test, Elder Blair and I waited upon the President, J. H. Barrows, and after some time and several interviews succeeded in securing seats as delegates. It was agreed between us that when our turn should come, Elder Blair would speak for the reorganisation basing our plans for such an arrangement upon the promise made by President Barrows that we would have an opportunity to present our views before the Assembly. We waited upon the actions of the Assembly daily, faithfully attending all the services which were usually held in the afternoons, and listening to the men of various denominations present their doctrines. This continued for several days, and then we were politely informed that the, largely, the large Assembly Hall not be available for our use in presenting our beliefs we pressed the promise which had been made to us but were peremptorily and distinctly told it would not be granted that there had been such a demand made by so many minor religious bodies that the leaders of the movement had decided that the larger room should be used only by the larger denominations they told us there was a small hall called, I think, Hall No. 3, which was available, where, by arrangement and advertising, we could hold any meetings we might wish to sponsor. This latter concession was, in fact, a virtual shifting of responsibility for the violation of the promise made by the leaders publicly and privately, viz. that all religious bodies should be treated with equal fairness. The seats President Blair and i occupied were just across the aisle and two seats to the rear of the one occupied by brigham h roberts the representative of the utah mormon church he also had received a promise as we had that a day would be appointed in which he could address the people and represent his faith but it happened that he was likewise refused the use of the main assembly hall and was offered instead the small one which would afford no better opportunity of getting his views before the delegates to the congress than any ordinary meeting place in the city would have supplied mr roberts liked the ultimatum no better than we did while attending the sessions of the Congress prior to this decision on the part of the committee, we experienced much pleasure in listening to a number of prominent men, each in his own way um, presenting the claims of various cults. These included Buddhism and other religions of the Far East, which seemed strange to us. Catholicism was presented by some cardinals, the matter having been written by one but delivered by another, who did the reading as substitute in a very pompous way. We heard the patriarch of the Greek church who, in a similar manner, stood majestically before the people, clothed in elaborate robes, holding aloft his staff of authority, the while an attendant read a translation of his message. We heard Dr Phillips Brooks, Dr Edward Everett Howe and other able Americans, representing different denominations, and felt by so much edified and instructed. We were interested in noting what each of these, from the Mother Catholic Church, clear through to the latest cult, permitted to be represented there, claimed that in itself and its ordinances, its distinctive features of itself and practice, lay the, the safest, surest and quickest way to salvation. Our philosopher from the East, sorry I start again, one philosopher from the East made a strong charge against the Western Church upon the ground that it presented a sectional Christ instead of a universal saviour. This man spoke in the English language though he was a native of East India where he had been engaged in one of the religious revolts. His arraignment of Western Christianity was not made but was presented clearly and dispassionately apparently the result of deep study reflection and reasoning he seemed convinced that the moral precepts of the bible as pre- represented by christ were not generally followed in the conduct and lives of his devotees or professed followers i remember one statement he made you do not follow the teaching of the one you call master for he commanded if a man strike thee upon one cheek turn thou the other to him also you do not do this you not only retaliate but are often the aggressors yourselves and i nowhere can find in his instructions where you are commanded to strike any one it impressed me as a pretty strong condemnation against the modern religious denominations who make great efforts to send their missionaries abroad for the purpose of proselyting for what is called Christianity and yet at the same time have no harmony or agreement among themselves each presenting its own version of Christ and his message truly a sectional saviour as was charged. One only interested in the success of that particular domination if the claims and attitudes of the various representatives may be taken as a criterion. After we had become convinced that we were not to be permitted to address the audience in the General Assembly Hall, we declined in writing to accept the small hall, which had been tendered as a compromise. Brigham H. Roberts did the same thing, for to accept, he said, would be like accepting a sop thrown to Sir Se- Se- a compromise he preferred to refuse. We did not blame him in the least for the comparison, for we, ourselves felt all too keenly the fact that we had not been accorded the honourable treatment promised and expected. I felt sure that Mr Roberts would have given a very fair and honest outline of his religion as he understood it. I did not converse with him upon the subject, for he seemed inclined to be reticent with us, quite non-communicative. We did, however, meet and shake hands, and I congratulated him upon his stand in declining to accept the small hole as a substitute for that which had been promised. Bishop Kelly once commented upon the whole affair in his characteristic and clever manner when he said, Why, it was all simply a mistake on our part. We should have been more alert and noticed what they said. They advertised the meeting as a congress of world's religions, and we took it for granted that included ours. But you see, they were right; it was a conference of the world's religions, and they were entirely consistent when they decided to exclude Christ's during the days thus spent in attending sessions and awaiting our turn. We visited many of the splendid exhibits of the huge fair. In the evenings, we held services in our own hall on Adams Street. These services were attended by quite fair audiences, and we felt that some good was done in spite of our disappointment in not getting our message before large numbers. At the close of one of these meetings, I was told a gentleman desired to speak to me. It proved to be a man who had heard of our meetings and had come for the purpose of discovering if he had aired in his present church affiliation or if we were right in our claims to be the true successor of the church organized in 1830. This very distinguished gentleman was none other than Dr. O. H. Riggs, later well known to the saints in Independence and Kansas City. At that time he was a resident of Salt Lake City and connected with its public school interests, holding office also in the dominant church of of that territory. Our interview was very pleasant. I suggested that it would be well for him to make all possible inquiry and investigation, assuring him that I felt if it were made with earnestness and honesty, he would be led to accept the truth and to raise himself with our religious body. At the time, this seemed but just one of the more or less casual incidents of the fair, But when the same man was later found by our missionary Rudolf Etzenhauser, in Cincinnati and taught further in the principles of the doctrine, his obedience and that of his wife began an association which he cherished until his death here in Independence seven or eight years ago. His baptism reminded me that blessings often attend the sowing of the seed in good season, whenever and wherever opportunity presents itself. It was in September we were at attendance upon this Congress of Religions the time from the 8th to the 18th, being fully and on the wholly profitably occupied, part of this time we enjoyed the society of other saints, whose visit to the fair coincided with ours. Among these I recall Brother Israel L. Rogers and a sister Barnes and son from Providence, who who made the boarding house of Brother S. C. Good their headquarters while there, as we did. Next heading, Frederick Douglass. An incident of interest to me at the time and since occurred there. For quite a number of years, I had been interested in the work of Frederick Douglass, a celebrated Negro of remarkable talent endowed with a remarkable memory of people and events. He was a resident of Washington, D.C., and generally well conversant with congregational men and affairs. He had become prominent as an advocate for the rights of his race and had deciduously defended their cause from the lecture platform and in the press after the death of his colored wife he married a white woman who had a grown daughter it seems that the management of the world's fair had failed or refused to provide for a separate department for exhibits from the negro race "'And Douglas came to Chicago for the purpose of protesting and securing, if possible, "'an adequate representation for his people. i had never seen the man, but one morning, looking out of the front window at Brother Goods, "'I saw him sitting on the porch. "'His wife and daughter had come into the house for breakfast, "'but not being permitted, because of his colour, "'to eat at the table with them and the other white boarders. "'He was waiting outside for them. "'I went outside, surmising who he was, and accosted him.' Bidding him good morning and asking, Are you not Fred Douglas? He looked up with considerable suspicion, and with that what seemed to be to me quite unnecessary asperity answered What difference does it make whether I am or not? Feeling a little nettled at his ungracious tone and manner, I put the question again squarely Are you Fred Douglas? And if I am, what is it that's to you, sir? deciding to give the man a reason for my curiosity i said well for a number of years i have watched the career of fred douglas and found much in him to admire if you are the man i should like to congratulate you upon the efforts you have been making to get a recognition and representation here for your race however if you do not choose to admit your identity i beg your pardon and i started to turn away he thawed out at this explanation and apologized for his rudeness We had a half-hour's pleasant chat. He had lost caste by his mistake in marrying a white woman, which act was an offence to his own race as well as to hers, and they were both quite effectually ostracised by the society of either group. The result was the complete ruination of a life and career that had promised great things for the Negro race in America, The man had become suspicious and sour, and his better powers and aspirations were being suppressed and stultified. I was glad I had this opportunity of meeting him and conversing with him. I had greatly deplored the outcome of the social error he had committed. From Chicago, I went to Sandwich and Plano, spending a day or two with old friends, including D.R. Pomeroy and wife Amasa Goodrich and wife and many others. Going down to Mission in Salle County, I made a little visit among our Norwegian brethren there. Finally, I headed for home and there learned that my wife's father, Elder Mads Madison, had passed away. He had made his home with us for some time and had been ill but a short while. They had tried to reach me by telegram in order that I might return home in time to see him still living, but owing to the uncertainty of my movements as I travelled among the saints, they had failed. He was a sturdy old gentleman who would have been eighty years old had he lived until October the thirteenth. Next heading: the exposition. I had been so impressed by the magnificence of the world's fair that after my return, I took measures to see that my wife's sons, Fred and Israel, and daughter Audie, were permitted to see it. Memories of its wonderful exhibits have enriched their lives as well as my own. It would be impossible to attempt to place upon record all that I saw or even all that I can still recall to mind, which impressed me at that great exposition, the first really important one I have ever attended. Some things which attracted me more than others stand out clearly in memory today. I was interested in some pictures of the topography of the country, the miniature mountains, valleys, rivers, waterfalls, lakes, hills, plateaus and all other features. Standing by them watching the tiny railways making their way through the countryside, I could in fancy see the places portrayed almost as really as if I were seeing them in actual travel. I spent hours near one such display taking great pleasure in contemplating it. It was a survey of the bay of New York and its river and showed the depths of the water at different points, the shoals rapids, and obstructions in and near the channels this picture made clear to me an understanding of how the sailors and seamen are able to follow the roads of the deep sea and the channels of the rivers along the shores so confidently and familiarly as they do their paths are apparently as easy for them to follow as the country roads over which we farmers drive our teams avoiding the bad places and finding and using to best advantage the good ones The display of telegraphic lines interlacing the country, following here and there and crowding into the cities to the north, east, south and west, to me seemed marvellous also. As I sensed the webs of electricity, which have thus been woven by the skills of men all over our country, binding us together in instant communication, I could but exclaim, Wonderful, wonderful. I stood before a sarcophagus, brought from far away Nineveh, and recalled the opening lines of a poem learned as a schoolboy. Oh, thou hast walled up how strange a story in Thebes Street three thousand years ago. A few feet away stood a little enclosure, arranged to represent a section of country where it never rains, and there I saw the body of one who had once lived there, some bundles of bone needles still clasped in her hand, as I noted the dried, shriveled, burnt condition of the skin, the portion of black hair still on her scalp, and the evidence of the work which had busied her when living. I could but wonder how it might have fared with me, or some near friend of mine, had we been called to breathe out our earth life in such an arid country, been exposed day after day to the intense rays of the sun, hot and unrelenting. In imagination, almost seeing the quivering waves of heat caused by the sun's radiation in such a fierce climate, I was made to wonder if it were true, as stated by the apostle that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him, or the other statement that God hath made of one blood the nations of man that to not divide the face of the earth, and hath appointed the boundaries and their habitations, etc. I was led to wonder in what way could a country where it never rains have been appointed for the habitation of man, and also if God were indeed no respecter of persons, how it happened that I had been permitted to live in this dear land of springtime and harvest, of rain and sun, of snow and summer, while others had had to pass their days in ignorance of such blessings. It seemed incomprehensible, and yet here was the visible evidence that such a land had been inhabited, and we of this generation, with ruthlessness almost equal to that of the Goths and Vandals, had invaded the sanctity of far-off burial places, had brought out that which was found, and had been displayed, and had displayed it before the curious gaze of passing throngs. I sighed as if. I sighed as I turned from contemplating these almost gruesome things of past time to the marvellous displays of the energies and activities of the different nations upon the earth at the present time. Things showing their advancement in art, science, commerce and inventions. In the beauty of their handiwork I could more easily find their assimilation and accord in which all peoples became one became as one in the hands of a great creator i'm going to leave that there and carry on in the next episode thank you for listening